Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we begin with a set of outcast vignettes, before heading to the bayou for part one of a story of a gremlin with lofty ambitions. I hope you enjoyed today's tales, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Simon Honkworthy's Dirigible Lines. Honkworthy airships offer the fastest and safest and most comfortable transatlantic passage with only two dozen fiery conflagrations per year. Remember, when you want a high quality gas bag, travel with Honkworthy. Outcast Vignettes In the wake of the Governor-General's death, the Victorias found themselves beset by opportunity on all sides. The Arcanists, Union and Resurrectionists all saw his death as an opportunity to move against the Guild, and the Guild met each such challenge with all the force it could muster. The Victorias sold their services to both sides of this conflict, amassing a small fortune in mercenary fees as they ignored the power struggles of their employers. When Nythera opened some weeks later, the sisters suddenly withdrew from the public eye. Their former associates caught sight of them from time to time in Dewar's library, flipping through ancient tomes and speaking in low voices, always in the company of their younger sister Vanessa. Some even claimed that one of the Victorias had developed a habit of arguing with her sword, which only seemed to draw concerned looks from the other two. When word came that the Victorias were looking for reliable men and women to accompany them on a special mission, the response was far greater than anyone could have expected. Mercenaries live or die based on their instincts, and all of them sensed that the sisters were preparing for something big, a hunch that was confirmed when the Victorias left the city, marching into the Badlands with five dozen of the most dangerous sellswords and hired killers in Malifaux at their backs. They would need no less to kill an immortal queen. While the Victorias had stayed within Malifaux City to reap the rewards of the Guild's weakness, another mercenary group had set their sights on a greater prize. Marshalling his mercenary forces, Von Schill led the bulk of the Freikorps south into the blasted wastelands to investigate stories of Nythera, the ancient ruins that had been discovered there. After driving a cabal of resurrectionists away from their stronghold in Katsora, the Freikorps discovered clues supporting Von Schill's suspicions that the Neverborn had hidden a weapon within the ruins of Nythera, the same weapon they'd used to defeat the tyrants. A thwarted Nephilim attack, led by Lilith herself, no less, only served to confirm Von Schill's belief that he was on the right track. When the Freikorps reached Nythera, however, 
they found themselves plunged into a freezing snowstorm created by Rasputina, who was determined to reinforce the magical seals holding Nythera closed. During the ensuing battle, the Winter Witch engulfed von Schill in a blast of her frozen magic, freezing him beneath an inch of solid ice. The Freikorps rallied to their leader's side, sacrificing their lives to buy enough time for the librarians to extract his frozen body from the battlefield and return him to Kathsora. In the end, they managed to save the legendary mercenary's life, but Frostbite had claimed his arm and leg, necessitating their removal. When he regained consciousness, Von Schill regarded his missing limbs for a moment, pulled out a cigar, and started barking orders to the surviving Freikorps. He had a shattered mercenary company to rebuild, prosthetic limbs to commission, and an arcanist to introduce to the business end of his clockwork pistol. When Nythera opened, a man in a tattered cloak a hundred miles away snapped his head upwards in surprise. Hamlin, or rather the Tyrant Plague, felt Titania's return like a dagger between his ribs. And in that moment, he realized that the careful game of maneuvering he had been playing with the other awakened tyrants had just been ruined, as surely as if the queen had flipped the table on which the game board had been resting onto its side. Plague had been accustomed to a certain languid pace with his plans. He had once before seen victory slip through his fingers due to his haste. But the return of a player who could legitimately hurt him, who could kill him, meant that he could no longer afford that sort of luxury. Hamlin had to consolidate his power as quickly as possible, in case the Queen still retained some measure of her former strength. By the time von Schill and his surviving Freikorps had limped back to Malifaux City, the guild was working desperately to contain numerous outbreaks of tuberculosis all across the city. It wasn't surprising, then, that they failed to notice that there was another sickness, a far more fatal contagion, slowly working its way through the city's poor and homeless. The rat-catchers complained about the sudden increase in the city's rat population, but the guild was too distracted by the tuberculosis outbreak to pay them much attention. Nicodem's undead horde and the guild's roundup of the Union was an unexpected boon for Hamlin, as it only served to provide an even greater distraction to those who might move against him. It was only when Hamlin once again donned his wide-brimmed hat, stepped out into the midnight streets of the city, raised his pipes to his mouth and started to play his haunting song, that the city's inhabitants finally began to notice that the Piper's Plague had returned to their city. But by then, it was far too late. Plague wasn't the only tyrant to notice Titania's return. The night after Titania was freed from Nythera, the shuffling corpse of a death marshal shambled up to the heavily fortified gates of the guild enclave and was quickly gunned down by the surprised guardsmen. After ensuring that the zombie was quite dead, they dragged it inside, and, in accordance with protocol, had its sealed pine box sent to the warded storage vault in the basement, where it would be inspected by the death marshals in the morning. When the pine box snapped open an hour later, allowing Tara to climb out of the nothingness within, there was nobody in the heavily warded room to sound an alarm. That came hours later, when the witch hunters opened the vault and discovered that someone had stolen hundreds of dangerous and uncatalogued magical artifacts and tomes. The only object still remaining in the vault was a single, unremarkable pine box. As the panicking witch hunters sent runners to find Samuel Hopkins and inform him about the theft, Tara was halfway across the city. 
She and the tyrant bound to her undead soul had decided that Titania's power should be their own. But imprisoning an entity as powerful as the Autumn Queen within the void so they could leech away her power would be difficult. Almost impossible, really. Tara grinned as she held one of the stolen artifacts, a mirror of polished obsidian, up in front of her. Almost impossible, she mused, wasn't quite the same thing as entirely impossible. Across the depths of the void, she could sense the approval of obliteration, and together they began to plan out the next step of its ascension. That same night, Jack Dor found himself deep in the wilds of Malifaux, floating before a flame-ringed breach that had opened twenty feet above the ground. These fluctuations called to him, drawing him to their vicinity in the same way that a scream draws the attention of a patrolling guardsman. He had peered through these breaches many times, and each time he felt some forgotten memory stirring in the back of his mind before the flaming breach collapsed, taking the half-formed recollection with it. This time, however, something was different. This time, someone peered back at him through the breach. The man was wreathed in blue flames, his head thrown back in a scream that did not pierce the boundary between dimensions. He floated in the air, a terrible star burning in the night sky, and Jack felt the noose tightened round his neck as the man caught his gaze. The burning man reached out towards the portal with a flaming hand, blackened, cracking fingers reaching desperately toward Jack, pleading with him for assistance, or perhaps asking the floating spectre to join him in the other world. Jack raised his hand toward the portal the runes beneath his flesh flaring up in bright green light as he mirrored the gesture of his counterpart in the other world. As their hands drew close to touching, two worlds shuddered beneath the force of the paradox, blurring lines that had always been, that must always be, distinct. Then the flaming breach collapsed with a flash of blue light, leaving Jack Dor floating in the darkness of the night, alone again. The next morning, Jack Dor was back on his tree, watching the breach, and waiting. As his fellow outcasts were struggling to come to terms with the death of the Governor-General, Leviticus was engaged in a struggle of his own. More and more steampunk abominations were turning up throughout the city, the product of lesser necromancers attempting to duplicate his work. By the time that he and his companion Rusty Alice had hunted the last of them down, Leviticus realized that his body was beginning to decay. His skin was flaking away, and his blood had turned a sickly dark brown color. He suspected that it was merely a curse from one of the necromancers they'd been pursuing, but when he died and returned to life in a new body, the problem had not abated. In fact, it seemed to have worsened. The cause of the change didn't matter to him, whether it was a result of the time he spent in the void, untethered to one of his hollow waves, something taken from him by the hodgepodge emissary, or merely the inevitable result of fraying his soul and returning from death one too many times. All that mattered was reversing the process, or at the very least, halting it before it spread further. Leviticus was no stranger to the necropolis, but now he began making forays into the crypt-like ruins beneath Malifaux City with increasing frequency. There had to be some spell, some relic, some scientific device that he could find and use to halt the slow creep of decay that worsened with each death he experienced. 
Zoraida had claimed that Leviticus was the fulcrum upon which Malifaux's destiny turned. If he was dying, did that mean that the burden of that destiny had shifted? Or just that his destiny was far darker than even he could imagine? Led Zeppelin by Graham Stevenson Nobody wants to be hit on the head by a gremlin, especially not a flying one. However, life isn't always fair, as Chester discovered when the heavy weirdwood club connected with the back of his head. His sailor's hat took some of the sting out of it, but there was still enough momentum and force behind the blow to knock him clean off the wagon. He went one way, his scattergun the other. The ground here was a slope of dusty earth and scrub that led down to the lip of a standing swamp, and Chester slid through the full gamut of pebbles and prickly undergrowth before sinking to his hips in brackish green water and foul-smelling algae. The wagon rattled on, unmanned. Altogether, he was in an unenviable position. His day had started out promising enough. Being the scattergunner on a Malifaux city bank and loan coach wasn't as perilous as one might think, and the pay was good. He saw a lot of the country in his job, threading through all the mining towns, dropping wage remittances and collecting land deeds from the branches to take back to the city vault. Chester enjoyed whiling away the miles by shooting at any small furry things that happened to wander within range of his scattergun. The cuter the better, but he'd take a pot shot at most anything in all honesty. The unexpected, random gun reports had bugged Flat Joe, the driver, something awful until Chester had conscientiously adopted the habit of murmuring Fluffy just before he pulled the trigger, to tip Joe off that a discharge was imminent. Chester was considerate that way. They'd done this route a dozen times before, and never had a lick of trouble, so neither man had seen the ambush coming. One minute Chester was lazily scanning the grassy verge for his next fuzzy conquest, and the next the air was full of screaming green and black birds. Then one of these birds landed on the roof of the coach, and he got a good look at a bayou gremlin with a crude glider attached to its back, made from oilcloth and wood, wearing an iron mask and carrying a pry bar. Iron Skeeters! the gremlin had hollered, and then attacked the heavy padlock on the side of the wagon. This new arrival was neither cute nor fluffy, but under the circumstances Chester had felt he'd best put some buckshot in him just the same. Before he got the chance, a second flying goblin swooped in at speed, and knocked Flat Joe clean out of his seat. The horses didn't register the reins falling slack and kept on trotting, oblivious. Chester swiveled to retaliate, but a third gremlin flashed past and tried to snatch the scattergun out of his hands. Chester managed to keep ownership of the gun and saw the foiled gremlin execute a wobbly flapping half-turn before nosediving into the dust, his momentum spent. They weren't flying, they were gliding. Sure enough, another wing of small black and green shapes detached from the upper branches of a tree and swept down on him, arms spread wide to catch the air. Again he heard the piping crow of Iron Skeeters and realized this was some sort of war cry. He finally got one in his sights, absently muttering Fluffy as his finger curled around the twin triggers and would probably have cut the little varmint in half had the blow from behind not taken him completely by surprise. Now he was disarmed 
half-submerged in a swamp that smelled worse than year-old Long John's, with an egg-sized welt swelling on the back of his head, while the coach trundled away, riderless into the distance. Things didn't seem like they could get much worse. The blocky, grinning snout of a Silurid rose slowly to the surface of the murky water a foot away. Well, how about that, Chester thought. Things could get worse after all. It was a beautiful evening. One of those cool, clear spring evenings where the ground was still warm from the day's sun, and the breeze was full of honeysuckle and jasmine. The suffocating heat of the summer was still a ways off yet, when the sweating stench of the bayou would permeate everything, and the agreeable temperature was made all the more poignant by the knowledge that it wouldn't last. Zip sat on the bluff and looked out across the darkening terrain. There had been a great river here once, or perhaps a lake, which had carved the teardrop bowl below. The ground was firm on the western fringes of the bayou, but there was still enough moisture in the soil to propagate furious plant growth. Every inch of ground below the bluff was carpeted in a vivid, lustrous green. To the south was the orange glow of Ridley. The buildings looked like a collection of toothpicks and matches scorched black by a fire, but Zip had been to Ridley before, and knew that up close they were considerably more impressive, at least by gremlin standards. The excited hooting behind him indicated that his crew had found a decent hole in the compartmentalized bowel of the bank carriage. Zip turned, disappointment furrowing on his brow. Is this what you think being an iron skeeter is all about? A gat-toothed gremlin popped his head out of the wagon. Beating folks about the head and taking stuff? Uh, yeah, that was the idea. Zip sighed. No, gentlemen. Why Zip had started referring to the other gremlins as gentlemen, none of them knew, but it seemed to make him happy. We don't steal because we need the things we take. We aren't scavengers. We are the bastards of the bayou, the terror that swoops down from the skies. We are iron skeeters, and our business is not coin. Our business, gentlemen, is infamy. We are not simple thugs. With the gliders I taught you to soar, I will lift you up with every new heist, and together we will claim the skies and... Are you listening? The gatooth gremlin briefly stopped stuffing Scrip into his pants. Yeah, sure, boss. Infamy. Can we still keep the loot? Buck, Zip began. I made you second in command because I thought you showed promise. But I'm starting to find you lack vision, a certain essential element to what it means to be a sky pirate. You see, Zip was cut off by a shrill scream as a Silurid wearing a soggy hat leapt up to the carriage and caught Buck's foot in its jaws. Zip! Zip, help! The other Sky Pirates started to raise their weapons, but Zip stopped them with a held-out hand. Who? Buck shrieked as the Silurid swallowed him up to the waist. Captain! Captain! Help me! You see, Buck, this is what I'm talking about. A true Sky Pirate needs to understand the proper chain of command, even in a crisis. We have the looting and the robbing down, yes, but it's about the spirit of the thing. It's about... The Silurid let out a loud belch. Buck was no more. Zip hadn't intended to allow the beast to eat a second in command. He fancied that might be seen as a sign of weakness. However, he was never one to let an opportunity go to waste. He gazed into the eyes of the horrified Iron Skeeters. Buck was not showing the proper state of mind. 
This beast, however, showed initiative. It saw an opportunity and it leapt for it, grabbing it with its very teeth. That is the spirit of an iron skeeter. Why, he's even dressed for the part. Zip gestured towards the soggy sailor's hat. Gentlemen, meet your new second in command. Meet your new first mate. With his support, we will raise ourselves from the muck of the bayou into the... There was a shrill scream as the first mate grabbed another gremlin and began gnawing on its leg. Never one to be interrupted, Zip smacked the creature on the snout, forcing it to drop the squealing gremlin. Gentlemen, would one of you please bring out some of the smoked pork we packed for lunch? The first mate is clearly hungry. It didn't take the gremlins long to convince the first mate that it was more profitable on the whole to eat the smoked pork that they tossed to it rather than waste time chasing any of the sky pirates. Even so, it eyed the gremlins with a hungry gaze, licking its lips. Zip explained to them that this was good for morale, that it was, in fact, the first mate's job to keep the crew in line. Secretly, he was surprised the creature kept following his directions, but then he had once fed a wild pig and it had followed him for a week, so he supposed it wasn't unusual animal behavior. Some of you may say that today was a good haul. Zip's monologue never seemed to stop. We made off with the script as we always do. That is the pirate way. But who remains to tell our tale? Who do we leave behind to spread the word of the fearsome Iron Skeeters? What is the point of stealing if nobody knows it was you? A coward might say it makes it easier to get away. But remember, gentlemen, that we do not trade in coin. We do not humble ourselves before scrip and petty loot. Our currency is infamy. And infamy must be sown so it can be reaped, you see? Another sky pirate interrupted Zip. Normally interrupting the head gremlin was a dangerous prospect, but if you worked for Zip, it was really the only way you'd ever get a chance to speak. I don't even know what you're saying, boss. Where'd you learn all them fancy words? You weren't always like that. An older gremlin nudged the sky pirate who had spoken. Stole himself an Aethervox one night. One of them talking boxes that humans use. He started listening to these stories on there, and ever since... Zip ignored them and continued talking. We are true pirates. The name of the Iron Skeeters will be whispered in hushed voices. Our legend will soar into the skies. He trailed off. It had finally dawned on him that something odd was happening in the distance. Far off to the south. The final rays of the sun had brushed momentarily against a shape emerging from the area near Ridley. Whatever it was, it had to be big to be visible at this distance. Black as a shadow, and already vanishing against the brooding darkness of the sky, Zip watched as a long, cylindrical object slid up from among the buildings and floated off into the sky. Floated. Into the sky. Well, what do you suppose that was? The older gremlin asked in a curious voice. Evidently, he'd seen it too. Zip knew that he'd caught a glimpse of something special and secret. Something deliberately stained or painted black to be invisible against the night sky. Had the vanishing sun not hit its flank just at the right moment, he'd never have seen it. I'll tell you what it was, Zip said. Infamy! All in all, it had been a good field test. Earl could tell this because the professor was relatively quiet. Had he not been pleased, 
That would have been a long and scathing monologue about all the inexcusable faults he had discovered. The hydraulics are a touch sluggish, Professor Tewalder said as they walked down the gangway into the hangar. I want you to flush the valves and replace the fluid to the airfoil motors. Yes, sir. Earl hurried along at the professor's elbow as he strode off the end of the gangway and struck out vigorously for the cargo door at the far end of the hangar. The scientist possessed an intimidating vitality for a man of such advanced years, and his long legs never seemed to tire. Check the lamps again, Hakim said a few moments later. When I finally reveal her, I want her symmetry to be perfect. There can't be a single one out. Yes, sir. Earl made a quick note on his pad, adding it to the already enormous list of revisions and maintenance tasks. Being head engineer sounded pretty official, pretty senior, and one could be forgiven for imagining that a certain degree of authority would come with the position. Under other circumstances, that would probably be the case. But Earl had learned to his immediate dissatisfaction that this didn't apply when the scientist in charge of the project was Professor Hakim Tewalder. It didn't matter that Earl oversaw a crew of engineers, welders and pipe fitters, nor that the funding for the Bloody Sky Project came from the Guild Science Division. As far as Hakim was concerned, it all belonged to him. The men, the tools, the hangar, even the airship, all his. Admittedly, Hakim had a certain genius when it came to the defiance of gravity. The Guild had brought the Abyssinian in specifically for the advancements his people had made in this technology. He was even mentoring a handful of other scientists who were using the airship to test new devices to see how they operated at an altitude. But his true expertise was with equations, chemical formulae, and the application of directional force. Turning the countless pages of crabby handwriting and ink-spotted blueprints into physical reality was Earl's task, and Earl's alone. So, for the last three years, he and his staff had been ensconced in this hangar doing just that. Despite his dissatisfaction with his position, Earl had to admit that the ship was a beauty. At 156 feet in length, the bloody sky cast a big shadow. Much of her bulk was comprised of the outer framework, skinned in black fabric, and about 40 hydrogen gas bags made of rubberized cotton that gave her a lift. Beneath the framework were three gondolas. Two smaller units housed the drive propellers and engines, and a long central gondola housed a cockpit, passenger berths, and a control unit for the mechanism. The real magic of Bloody Sky was hidden in the nose of the airship's frame, the science division's trump card for the International Science and Technology Exposition. Earl tried hard to avoid the political aspects of his work, but he understood that the success of this project had doubled in importance since the death of the Governor-General. The Guild's hold over Malifaux had been badly shaken, and there were a lot of financial backers needing reassurance that it was still on top of its game. Bloody Sky would prove that the Guild was stronger than ever, if it worked. Pressure tests. Pressure tests, the professor was saying. It's less than three months to the exposition, and I will not be thwarted by an ill-fitting pipe. I want the entire system checked for faults. Yes, sir, Earl nodded, making another note. I'll be here all night, he thought to himself, but he was careful to keep his expression neutral and businesslike. If this project was a success, Earl would get his pick of juicy assignments, all paid for by a grateful guild. The professor stopped at the hangar door and turned back to give the airship a final appraisal. And get someone up here to polish the brass housings, he said, slamming the door behind him as a final punctuation. Yes, sir, 
Well said to no one in particular, and turned back into the hangar. Zip was finally ready. It had taken weeks of continuous scouting and spotting, but he and his crew had monitored the skyline for a reappearance of the mysterious floating object, and managed, over a series of sightings, to triangulate the position of its emergence. At first, the other gremlins couldn't see the point of the exercise, but a few judicial cuffs and hungry glares from the first mate. He was really pulling his weight, Zip noted. It enforced its importance on them, and they had fallen into line. Whoever owned the flying ship, for ship it was, his spotters had seen faces through the portholes on the craft's underside as she lifted into the sky, had taken great pains to keep her hidden. The hangar was a huge crumbling structure at the heart of a ghost town on the outskirts of Ridley that wouldn't warrant a second look from even the most curious bystander. As for the ship herself, her entire surface was black, and it was only the brass fittings and pipework that gave her away. Some damned fool had polished the metal to a high luster, and it was those telltale glints and flashes that had helped Zip Scouts pin down the location of the secret hangar and its stealthy occupant. The first time Zip had crouched in the rubble at dusk and watched the vessel lift gracefully into the night sky, he had known that she was his destiny. This wonderful ship, whatever she was, was meant to be his. She was the missing piece. She completed him. The grandeur and notoriety he had always desired was finally within his grasp. He would swoop down out of the night sky and strike terror into the populace while separating them from their valuables, obviously. His crimes would be beyond belief, impossibly daring, and the whole world would tremble and crouch at the mention of the Iron Skeeters. He would be a sky pirate. And tonight was the big night. They had been watching the comings and goings from the hangar, and most of the workmen seemed to leave after dark. The airship herself only took flight once a week or so, and she'd been out only last night, so the hangar ought to be quiet. There were guards, of course. A contingent of guardsmen was always on hand in two rotating shifts. But they had clearly been on this assignment for a long time. They were lazy and inattentive, and regularly clumped together in quiet corners of the hangar to smoke and play cards. By the time they knew something had gone wrong, Zip planned to be well away with his prize. The fact that neither he nor any of his crew had the faintest idea of how to operate an experimental airship was an insignificant detail. All right, boys, he whispered, beckoning them close. It's time. White grins broke out in the darkness. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of Led Zeppelin.